This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag, which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash greenbiz. And this episode is sponsored by global technology company ABB. Through its leading technologies, ABB is addressing the world's energy challenges and transforming industries for a more sustainable future. Find out more at abb.com forward slash sustainability. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Ice Hub in Glasgow, Scotland. On this week's edition, the view from inside COP26, Barack Obama's star turn in the blue zone, why the circular economy isn't going around here in Glasgow, and what Amazon is learning about sustainability on this side of the pond. We're taking the high road this week on 350. It's November 12th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me here in the Ice Hub is my Bonnie co-host, Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hi, Joel. How are you? Did you make it up to the Highlands when you were here? No, I have been in, in Glasgow City since I got here. And um, uh, you've been staying outside the city. Did you make it? Uh, what did you see? I actually went to Stirling Castle in, in during my trip here, um, where Mary Queen of Scots was born, which is very cool. And I went to Lach Lomond, which uh, was a lovely park, uh, just to be outside for a few hours both days this weekend. That's great. And you didn't get the pouring rain on, was it Saturday or Sunday? I can't even remember anymore. I did get the pouring rain on both days and it was lovely. I had a raincoat, so who cares? Yep. It's uh, it's, it's all part of the scene here in Glasgow. And part of the scene that we're in right now is, as I said, it's called the Ice Hub. And it's a, a, a place that Bill McDonough and his team put together kind of last minute uh, to have a place to uh, bring together some of the companies that are part of uh, his network of circular companies and innovators and uh, and also just a place to have events. And it's turned into this this amazing circus for these two weeks, uh, the dance and music and rap and lots of dinners and meetings and almost every day and all day and all night and just a place for, for people like you and me to hang out. And they're nice enough to let us use this space. So you hear some, some of our other ice hubbians in the background here doing their thing. Um, but Heather, I mean, two weeks of COP is a lot of COP, and you've been here a little longer than I have, several several days longer than I have. Um, give us uh, your sort of overview of, of how this has been for you as your first COP, and um, what's what's it been like? So I was uh, asking this question of a lot of people I ran into, you know, how many COPs have you been to? What did you think? And uh, amazingly, like a lot of the individuals I asked that question of, this was their first COP. So I suppose that shouldn't be surprising given how many people were here. I think the figures were 30,000 or something like that. Just, But um, the way someone put it to me sort of in the middle of the week was, middle of the, the conference was, 
there's like a cop around the cop. You know, there's this, all these people meeting on the sides and, and, and having these convenings and, and making announcements, you know, coming up with these coalitions and, and, and pacts and alliances. We'll, we'll talk about a few in a moment, but, you know, to get stuff done. So I, my impression was, um, you know, it, there was a lot going on and way more than I could possibly imagine and cover. I was just I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed, to be quite honest. Um, and and not I'm not sure how I'm feeling, optimistic or pessimistic or kind of both. I don't know. What about you? Well, first of all, I, I think there's it's a three-ring circus in the following ways. There's, in the center is the negotiation. The 197 countries were working on stuff that at the time you and I were talking, we don't know yet what that'll be. And I'm sure it'll be, you know, whelming not over or under <laughs> it'll just be you know and as i wrote about i guess a couple mondays ago now that um to some extent uh cop succeeds by not failing so we'll see how that goes uh the second ring or the the side events the ones that are sort of there's no official and some unofficial side events which is um some specific ngos and business associations are having events all over the city and then the third ring is everybody else and that includes just hundreds if not thousands of dinners receptions meetups protests, uh, demonstrations, uh, you know, circus acts. I mean, you name it, you know, it's, it's a little bit of everything and it is overwhelming. And there, there are, I know a hundred people who are here that I have not seen. And, and so it's, it's just the way, the way it is. And of course, logistics and rain and everything being what it is, it's, it's been an interesting period of time, but you know, I think that, um, well, my take on this, and I, as I wrote on Monday, is that it, this is in many ways unofficially the business cop. And what I mean by that is that uh, the business sector really has stepped up in ways that um, I, I think is, a, is important to note, particularly in light of the fact that a few cops ago, certainly back to Paris in, in 2015, the question was, if business, were business leaders even going to show up? let alone have a voice. And they always do to some extent, but not really. Here, I think, to a large extent, business is driving the conversation. When I say business, I'm talking about finance, financial community, as well as the corporate community. Um, and if you look at uh, some of the things that have taken place over the past couple of weeks, the announcements on methane, as you wrote about, on um, on, on forestry, as I wrote about deforestation, but a lot of the things that weren't even issues at COP a couple years ago, ESG, the just transition, um, uh, nature-based solutions, are are really driving the agenda to a large extent. Now, we need government, we need commitments, we need carrots and sticks to, to, to drive this, but I'm really impressed with the business role here. And, and as I've been talking to business people and activists even, they're, they're also saying some pretty salutary things about the, the way business is showing up here. So it's funny you should bring that up because I had a different take on that because I was over at a, an event earlier today. We're obviously not recording this live, but, uh, and there was a big protest outside. It wasn't even for the event I was in. It was for another event in the building. And um, I just, I feel like there's a, a lack of, I mean, there's such a lack of trust in big, big business in particular that I worry a little bit about, well, actually I worry a lot about the ability to keep pushing forward. Um, if everything has become greenwashing, then how do we know what's meaningful? And so I get frustrated because I read about these really great things like what you and, and I wrote about and they get poo-pooed immediately. It's like everything that the business does is immediately shot down. Um, so I, I feel for you out there actually listening because I know how tough your job is, but 
I, I worry about that. I worry that we're not listening to each other, that we're kind of talking around each other a lot. Well, to some extent, but it's the activist role to say, no, not good enough. That This is the game that goes on. And, and to push, to raise the bar, push the, you know, the carrots further up uh, out there and keep those sticks uh, wielded. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that there's... Um, I think there is a little bit of, you know, that's always going to be the case, but I think there's a different tone here. And, and, you know, look, trust is a huge issue right now. And I, and I, I think of this quote from uh, the best-selling business author, Stephen Covey, who said, um, change happens at the speed of trust. And if you look at the lack of trust, you understand why things aren't changing. You know, particularly you take the United States and government. Well, that's it. That's it. You know, just sitting there and not doing anything. And, and, and in general, a lot of these things that are so slow, like cop negotiations, it all has to do with trust. So, so we're in a, I think an interesting place there. Yeah. And I, well, we could, this is a totally different path. One that's for many, probably podcasts from now, but I think the other thing that kind of puzzled me was that oceans weren't really part of the conversation here. They were at one of the side events I was as at uh, the, during the time here. Um, and food. And we both have opinions about the food here <laughs> in Glasgow. It's been intermittently awesome, wonderful plant-based um, meals at, at different events, but also just sort of the traditional food over in the the main blue zone was, was, you know, you look horrid, horrid, but also not sustainable. You know, you look at the, you think about just the way we, we send messages with, with the things we eat and consume. And it just seems like that was a missed opportunity to really um, change the dialogue on the food systems issues. Nature was part of the dialogue, but you know, I'm not sure food got enough attention. Yeah, and a lot of things did. Now, you'll, you'll hear from my conversation in a few minutes uh, with Bill McDonough. Uh, circular economy was not really part of this either, and, and we'll talk a little bit about why that may be. But, you know, uh, let's move from here to some of the stories we covered this week in the Week in Review. So I'll start us off this week with, uh, well, we actually had two U.S. presidents here, a former U.S. president and the current U.S. president. Um, Barack Obama made a speech this week, and he he largely addressed it to um, the activists that were here. And um, one of the things that he was, you know, like this is a great quote in the headline, um, don't sulk, don't sulk, sulk, get busy, don't sulk, get busy. Um, And, uh, you know, I think... What he was trying to do was encourage young people to not just be in the streets, but to actually go and take action, to go work for these companies, to go educate um, in different ways, to bridge the bridge that that gap that I was talking about before to help build the trust. So, um, you know, one of the things he said, we can't just yell at them or tweet at them. It's not enough to inconvenience them by blocking traffic through protests. We're going to have to listen to the objections and reluctance of ordinary people that see their countries move too fast on climate change. Um, We have to understand the realities. So we have to work. We have to, you know, I think he was talking to both sides here is like, to my point before, we're talking around each other a lot. And uh, he kind of tapped into that. Well, with all due respect to the former president, uh, he, he also is trying to play both sides of the yeah. street, talking out of both sides of his mouth because he's talking about urgency or talking about he, he's talking about you know, his, his priority now is pace. There needs to be a sense of urgency 
in talking about the negotiators and at the same time he's counseling the youth don't just march in the streets go you know train for the jobs go get the jobs and education and all that stuff that's a long slog and i think what we're seeing is the emergency part the urgency certainly uh went out uh, in, in a lot of cases and, and and i think that's a good thing and and they're not mutually exclusive of course you can press for urgency and still go figure out your career. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, everyone's trying to find that sweet spot between engagement, meaningful engagement that, that engenders change and how to do it quickly. And, you know, we're running out of time. So uh, let's turn to uh, mobility um, because that was a, uh, another topic. Um, uh, yesterday, Thursday, the 11th was uh, transportation day, some big announcements on shipping and uh, the decarbonization of, of vehicles, some big commitments made by uh, countries to, uh, to, to get to 100% zero emission, uh, not just trucks and buses, but all vehicles and phased out uh, internal combustion engines. I mean, wow, uh, you know, big stuff. And that syncs nicely with this piece uh, that we ran uh, this week called How to Scale Up Investment in S- Sustainable Mobility by uh, Maya Bendror and Jitan Vikarnam and Eric Hannon uh, from, uh, well, let's see, World Economic Forum and uh, and McKinsey. Uh, looking at, you know, what's what's the opportunity here and how do we take what's the, the third largest contributor to global greenhouse gas emissions, the transportation sector, um, and, and the only sector where emissions are still increasing, um, even in the developed world, you know, how do we – how do we deal with that? And they have a report called Unlocking Large-Scale Long-Term Capital for Sustainable Mobility uh, that uh, with an even longer subtitle, so I won't get into that. But uh, how, you know, how, how do they, uh, they, they, well, they introduce six proposed sustainable mobility investment cases. So uh, lots there to chew on. Um, any particular takeaways from this, Heather? So one of the things that actually emerged during the the conference here, the summit, was a number of those smaller agreements that I mentioned before. Um, there was a, a, some announcements about sustainable aviation fuel. There were more of those, more purchasing commitments, which I love. I think for me, the, the sort of the purchasing uh, commitments that were being made here at the conference were very important. Um, so some there was a lot more on the from the sustainable aviation. Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance. I think I got that acronym right. So that was great. Um, also, some interesting, uh, you know, our friends from CalStart were here um, having a lot of conversations with other countries. Um, and they brought together a global memorandum of understanding for zero emission medium and heavy duty trucks, uh, excuse me, vehicles. So like an M- MOU for um, these things in some interesting con- countries, Austria, Canada, Switzerland, Turkey, UK, the Netherlands, and so forth, not the US, um, but they're setting um, interim goals of 30% zero emission new vehicle sales by 2030. That's nine years from now. Um, Quebec, which I thought, actually, I saw the, the, uh, someone from Quebec speak this week, and he was talking about um, how in Quebec, since 90% of the electricity there is hydro, how it's such in their interest to get this done quickly because it could have a huge impact right away for their for their subnational goal. So I think um, you saw a lot of subnational transportation um, movement happening. You know, I, I tapping into this this larger piece um, that that the World Economic Forum and, and McKinsey did. There were a lot of things that played right into that. 
it sure would be nice to get the U.S. involved with uh, these consortia, and, and, and that's a heavy lift because because of the uh, massive influence of not just the automobile sector but the oil and gas sector. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, you know this statistic that somebody came up with some uh, research organization. They looked at all of the attendees here in Glasgow, mm-hmm. and they saw that the oil and gas, uh, the people who were delegates, uh, uh, oil people from oil and gas companies represented the largest yeah uh, if they like were a country or if they, I, I don't remember the number but if they were a country they would have been the largest delegation and that's really interesting at the same time i don't know what they're getting for their money this this year mm-hmm. i don't see a lot of kowtowing certainly or concessions in general to uh the to the automotive and oil and gas sector there you know these to your point these commitments are coming fast and furious and they all call for phasing things down and i know that you know this isn't mid-century this is end of this decade and there will be interim targets 2025 different you know name your cop there'll be different benchmarks for each of those so i i think it's really interesting that uh the the despite their presence here, they may, I don't know, I may be proved wrong, but I don't see them making a big impact. So there were a couple of other, um, yeah, to, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I just wanted to bring up a couple of other things with the transportation discussion, one of which um, was, of course, the thing we hear all the time, which is we need investments in the charging network, right? We need this to happen before we can get to the scale that we need. But the other thing, um, to your frustration about the circular economy, that was where I actually did hear uh, quite a bit about that, um, especially with batteries, right? And um, how it could, this movement could inspire um, finally those practices in that in that sector, but also um, jobs, new jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, I spent a the day with the climate group for their Route Zero event on uh, this week, and that was a big part of the discussion: was the just transition, the new kinds of jobs that could be created, the um, materials, and how that could impact sort of more broadly the, um, the sustainability strategies of the automotive companies. Polestar was here; they're uh, wholly, I think they're well, they're, they were spun out of Volvo, um, and they were talking a lot about how they're creating a. Um, a manufacturing model that's that supports that and as well there was other com- uh, another company that I saw a really interesting model where it's all locally sourced like the cars are actually made in the communities where they're going to be driven so they can tweak them it's like an open source model where if they need something in this particular region they can do it like if you think about it like this region has a lot of rain and this one doesn't like how do you tweak the car so kind of cool stuff Instead of starting a company called General Motors, you'll have to create one called Specific Motors. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Good one. But, you know, I just want to make a prediction here, okay? I, I, don't, I don't do a lot of predictions, but I'm going to go out on a, a very big limb on this one. Um, I think that I'll say in, in two, two years from now, so let's presume that there'll be two COPs, COP28, that just transition will be the new net zero that this is the thing that everyone will be waving their arms about making commitments on. And and at the same way as net zero, there'll be some push pushback on greenwash. There'll be a need for standards. What does that actually mean? How do you measure it? Your impact, what are you actually doing? And are, you, and are the things that you're doing are things you've been doing all along, community philanthropy, things like that. Um, but I think that just transition is going to really come out of the woodwork or however you want to say it to be a, a big part of this. It, it's just the right thing at the right time. And now people are starting to press on this. And already the conversation is getting in, in he, heading in that direction and uh, lots more to, to come on that. 
one of the companies all over the place in Glasgow at the COP conference was Amazon. And I had the good fortune to catch up with Zach Watts, who's the director of European strategy for Amazon uh, as far as sustainability goes. Zach, thank you so much for joining me here on GreenBiz 350. Thanks for having me, Heather. So I wanted to start with a general question because it's actually your first COP and my first COP uh, as we talk. It's sort of in the middle of the conference. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, what are some of the things that have really struck you so far? Reminding our listeners that uh, we've got some time to go. So we're early on, but what, what's really struck you uh, early on in this conference? Well, it is my first COP and I think the energy here has, has really impressed me. Um, a general sense of you know cautious optimism around the progress being made. Uh, I've I've been really happy to see nature really at the top of the agenda in various events. In uh, what way? Uh, well, I think the announcement around uh, halting deforestation by 2030 was a really positive move and certainly links in with some of Amazon's priorities when it comes to nature-based investments. And the other big thing for me is just around collective action. You know, mm. at Amazon we really acknowledge that. You know, we've made this big commitment to be net zero by 2040. We're encouraging other companies to join us on that journey, but we know we can't go it alone. So I've been encouraged to see the extent to which, you know, uh, private sector, public sector, governments, companies, large and small, NGOs are coming together uh, to build coalitions around, around how we get to net zero. Right. We had a number of them, including the First Movers Coalition, which you are involved with. Why is that so important? Well, I think as we as we start on this journey, as we work towards decarbonizing our business, we know that there are some sectors that are still quite hard to abate. And so aviation, cargo shipping, steel, these are, these are sectors that Amazon has a vested interest in. And we really want to encourage innovation uh, in, in investment in those spaces. So we wanted to send, along with other companies, we wanted to send a really big uh, demand signal with this initiative that Secretary Kerry spearheaded. There was another one on energy, uh, the Renewable Energies Buyers Alliance. Yep. Right? Reba. Reba, um, which today, uh, yesterday I think announced that there are a number of companies, 75 in total, who are signaling you know, massive demand for ongoing investment in renewables, mm -hmm. which has been a, you know, another huge priority for us, both globally and here in Europe. Yeah, I had an opportunity to speak earlier with someone who described that all of these coalitions and so forth as sort of the COP within the COP. Yeah. Because actually a lot of them do involve countries. Um, there's, you know, and I thought it was very interesting that, that Kerry was part of the First Mover Coalition launch because the government, uh, the federal government of the United States, could be a huge procurement uh, driver in the future. So that's, that was a really cool yeah. um, initiative. So I want to drill in on the European strategy that yeah. you're driving. Um, and one of the, let's start with energy. You brought it up a moment ago. And we know that, uh, as one example, that Amazon is the largest corporate procurer now of renewable energy. I think that you hit that milestone this year. Yeah. How does that play in Europe? Uh, what's this? What's the same as in the United States and what's different? What are you doing differently? Well, you're right. So renewable energy is one of the big areas where we've, um, we've been really focused over the last you know, couple of years since we announced the pledge. And uh, you know, we're proud of that title, world's largest corporate purchaser, but we know we have tons of work still to do mm -hmm. because you know, as our business grows, our demand for electricity grows. and we committed actually initially to be 100% powered by renewables globally by 2030. The positive surprise for us was that we were able to bring that goal forward uh, and announced that we could, we could hit it by 2025. We're at 65%, we announced with our report globally last year. And so we're making progress there. Within Europe, we're very focused on large scale solar and wind, utility scale projects. 
Um, we've, we've announced 2.7 gigawatts worth of power output that we've committed to of 10 gigawatts globally. So a significant portion of our sort of focus in this space is, is within Europe. It's, it's really across all countries. And the interesting thing about Europe is, you know, every country is different and every, everyone's sort of energy sector is in a different spot. So we're, you know, really committed to um, big solar projects in Spain, big wind projects uh, all over the place, offshore and onshore. Mm -hmm. We're, we're um, committed to projects in Ireland, Scotland. We actually have one not too far from here, about three hours drive from Glasgow on the, the Kintyre Peninsula that we announced uh, last week. It's our first operational project in the UK. So we're mm -hmm. super proud of that. It's a 50 megawatt project. We're taking 100% of the, of the output of that project with no government subsidies. So we're proud of that. And we have, a, I think we have four projects in total will be coming online in the UK over the coming year. So as a Brit, I'm, I'm super happy to see that come to life, but it's, um, it's across, it's across the continent uh, and it's ongoing work. We know we're not done. A quick follow up on that Scotland, Scotland uh, mm. deal. Is that offshore? That is actually onshore. It is uh, onshore. onshore wind. Yeah. But I know that there is a lot of offshore wind in Europe generally. Um, yes. And it's something that's very exciting in the United States right now, there's a lot of talk of development there. So what we what can we learn about that? Is there a big difference in in how you do those deals? Well, we, we, we operate as a global team. So we you know, I have a sort of team here in, in Europe that's focused on procurement uh, and we kind of closely connect with our kind of global energy procurement deal. Um, I'm personally not so close to the US energy market. I, mm -hmm. I you know I read the news and I'm aware that it's picking up with some of the some of the investments in yep. the East Coast. So we will certainly be sharing what we learn with our with our US colleagues as as they ramp up as well. Okay. Okay. So Amazon comes to my street several times a day in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, I would imagine it's similar in Europe. Maybe it's not, but I, I know that Amazon has made a huge investment and commitment to electric vehicles um, yeah. across its delivery fleet. And that doesn't have to necessarily be cars or trucks or whatever. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about how that strategy is playing out in Europe. Um, what, what's the same and what's different again? Yeah. So, so what's the same is we, we have a global commitment to electrifying our last mile delivery fleet. And so, as you might be aware, we made a big commitment to buy 100,000 electric delivery vans from Rivian mm -hmm. to be rolled out by 2030, 10,000 on the road globally by the end of next year. So we're kind of heads down, moving as fast as we can to get those on the road, both US, Europe, around the world. Uh, also here in Europe, you know, we, we don't want to wait for those to come online. We've made commitments to purchase vans from Mercedes locally, 1,800 vans. We have thousands of vans actually already delivering electric vans within Europe, within the countries in which we operate. Uh, on top of that, I think maybe what's different is that when you look at our business in Europe, there are, you know, a higher proportion of our business is focused in these dense urban centers uh, across across Europe. So we are able to experiment in, in different ways. and what we call micro-mobility solutions, which is effectively people delivering on bikes or, mm -hmm. or on foot. Mm. That's an area where we're experimenting. Um, we, we, we had an event in Freiburg in Germany last month, which is a you know sort of famously bike-friendly city. Uh, and it's one of 20 urban centers where we've begun to experiment with these kind of micro-mobility, kind of completely emissions-free solutions. So in my head, I, I go to these, these sort of safety issues of that, employee safety issues, because the US is not that bike friendly yeah. in the cities. There's a lot of scary stuff. Yeah. Um, so how do you protect the people? Um, was that like a... Yeah, safety is a, safety is a huge deal yeah. for Amazon. I mean, I can, I can tell you that from my time prior to working in sustainability. 
you know, safety is often the first the first metric we look at before okay. we look at business metrics. So, you know, we are ensuring our, you know, delivery associates are mm-hmm. sort of well equipped with kind of guidance on, you know, how to navigate the you know, the urban centers. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's number mm-hmm. one priority. Mm-hmm. So the other uh, factor in delivery is the weight of the delivery and the packaging and, and yes. how that's so again, uh, go. Let's go to another big strategy for yeah. Amazon: circularity and circular packaging. Yes, um, and making it lighter and and uh, less less plastic, probably. Um, how do, how what is the packaging priorities? Well, well, packaging has been a huge focus for us for uh, for a long time. Actually, for mm-hmm. over a decade, we've had packaging engineers working on sustainability programs, even predating the Climate Pledge, because right. we. What we know is that our customers really care about the environmental impact of the packaging that we deliver the products in. Um, it often comes through, in fact, as the top concern, uh, even ahead of kind of carbon emissions. Um, and so we have been really focused uh, on reducing packaging weight since 2015. We've taken out, you know, if you look at it on a sort of per unit basis, about 33% of the packaging weight, just by focusing on optimizing box size, you know, reducing the number of instances where you receive a product in a box that's too big. So reducing material, I mean, that, that's taken out a million tons of packaging, mm-hmm. equivalent to two billion boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a sort of long running program that we've remained focused on. We have other programs where we seek to deliver without any packaging. So we can deliver packaging free. We have a program we call frustration free packaging. Again, quite well established and encouraging our suppliers to deliver products to us in a way that we don't actually need to box over the top because it can be delivered safely, you know, without damage. Uh, and then increasingly, we're also focused on material use. So um, increased circularity in the materials we use, reduced use of single-use plastics. Um, customers in Europe are seeing less and less sort of single-use plastic in, in the packaging that we use. Mm-hmm. So it remains, you know, whilst we're incredibly focused on the climate pledge, uh, you know, equally, we have to keep track on, you know, packaging as an input to both carbon as well as our material waste mm-hmm. footprint. So I'm going to go back to uh, something you mentioned before, which was the company Rivian. And that's, a, I, can't, I guess you can't call them a startup anymore, um, but they're a newer company. And uh, Amazon has been working with uh, new suppliers or new partners that can mm. help deliver on some of these goals. So I'm curious about the state of innovation in Europe and yeah. the startups. Um, I call them climate tech startups. I don't know if they don't all have to be tech, tech companies, but... Who are some of the innovative companies that you're working with in Europe? Well, it comes back a little bit to the sort of rationale behind the First Movers Coalition, as you said. Mm-hmm. You know, we recognize that there's action we can take right now. Uh, technology is, exists today in terms of electronic vehicles and, you know, with renewable energy. But then there's other sectors, carbon and steel, where we need innovation. Um, so we do have this initiative, the Climate Pledge Fund, which is a $2 billion fund. It's a global fund focused on investments in early stage startups that are really seeking out those kind of far-reaching visionary technologies that can, you know, bring the clean technology and enable the transition we need. Within Europe, so it's early days for the fund, I should say. say it's only been around for about a year, I think a bit less than a year. We've invested in about a dozen companies so far. Some of them are Europe-based, so we announced one last week, CMC Machinery received an investment from us. They're an Italian-based packaging machinery company. And as I was just saying, you know, packaging is, you know, hugely important for customers, you know, key input for us to reach our decarbonization goals. And so that's that's one example. That there are others. Um, Zero Avia is a hydrogen electric aviation company hmm, that has, right. has operations in the UK. And mm-hmm. so part of my job is, you know, whilst we're looking for global solutions and doing the right thing for our global goals, looking at how we can direct investment to, you know, local startups. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's actually a big deal. Um, like local focus. Uh, is that a, is that here in Europe? In, in the U.S., everyone's kind of talking about local supply chains and bring it home and how do you make this happen here? Yeah, I think I think it is a focus, and that's part of why. I mean, that's part of the reason you have a regional sustainability team. Is like, mm -hmm. how can you activate a strategy in a way that brings benefits to, locally? Yeah. Um, so maybe another example. I mean, on, on nature, we talked about. It, just going to go there. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me how that strategy, the nature-based solutions, yeah. maybe particularly the tree planting um, yes. that you're doing. Yes. So I mean, it probably worth just backing up and saying that uh, you know, when it comes to decarbonisation, our first priority is reducing emissions in our business. Mm -hmm. You know, we we are not. Uh, you know, investing in nature-based solutions is complementary. It's an it's an and solution, not something we do first and foremost, which is operational changes. Leaf is a great example of a global initiative focused on tropical deforestation avoidance. You know, large-scale carbon emission reductions. But we also see a place, in addition, for local community-based nature investments, which maybe more around kind of biodiversity benefits or you know climate resilience and even social benefits. And so. Uh, we have a couple of projects live uh, here in Europe. We have an urban greening project in Berlin, which is focused on you know greening up the city. More recently, and that's, that program has been live for about a couple of years. More recently, just this year, we announced investment. Um, so we've ring fenced a 20 million euro budget for nature-based investments in Europe. The first recipient of that fund is a project called Parco Italia, which is a, na a national level urban greening program. Uh, mm. The intention is to plant 22 million trees in wow. cities across Italy. Uh, they were looking for a corporate partner. It seemed like a great fit for us, given that we're seeking to learn and invest in this space. And so we partnered again back to the partnership theme. <laughs> we partnered with um, local ministry there, the Ministry of Silviculture, as well as a local sort of flagship architect firm, Stefano Guerri, Architetti. And so we're building out this program and seeking to enable the research and innovation that's required there. Mm -hmm. I have a couple more questions for you. The, the first of which is to do with consumers. Hmm. Huge, you're a huge consumer company. Mm -hmm. um, how are the consumers in Europe different from those in the US? Like what, when you talk to your colleagues in the US, are there things you can do differently because of the mindset here? Or you know, are there places where you're, you're ahead of, of US or really? Yeah, I think one, one thing that is different, and or at least what we can see in the data, and, and at the risk of overgeneralizing here, but mm -hmm. I, I do think European consumers, at least from what we can see, are demanding uh, more sustainable choices, potentially at a faster pace than consumers at other parts of the world. And so, you know, we have a shopping program, which is a global program, but which uh, we really want to drive very hard in Europe because of that customer demand. It's called Climate Pledge Friendly, so it's that link with the Climate Pledge, and it's intended to enable easy discovery of a wide range of selection of sustainable products. So hopefully we can create a flywheel there where we make these products more discoverable. Um, you know, we badge them on the site, we, we give them the prominence on, on the on, within the shopping experience that incense uh, vendors and brand manufacturers to, to build new products and then customers, you know, buy more of them and we just raise the bar, you know, across the shopping experience. So I think that Europe is a kind of, um, change agent in that respect in terms of customer customer demand is, is interesting and that program is, is also another relatively new program it's been around for about a year we have a hundred thousand products available today we it's certification based so we we have both built our own certification which is focused around kind of volumetric efficiency we call it compact by design it's products which are smaller and lighter than the traditional form factor in a given category 
we also partner with third-party certifications, about 30 of them, yeah. typically quite high bar. So you know, EU Organic, Soil Association, um, EU Energy uh, labels and EU Eco labels, sorry. And so uh, that's the way in which we're seeking to, I guess, empower consumers mm -hmm. to make the choices, sustainable choices that they want to make. Mm -hmm. But I think, we, you know, we are on a journey when it comes to everything in the space. And I think we're, we're certainly not done when it comes to sort of shopping experience, innovation yeah, in this yeah. regard. So just one last question, which has to do again with sort of sharing and, and again, you're a global organization, you're delivering on a global strategy. So what, what are you doing to share this information with your counterparts around the world and, and how, how are you learning from them and they, they're learning from you? Well, we are a global organization. And so I sort of roll up into the worldwide sustainability org. Um, there are, it's interesting to see, you know, the ways in which we can leverage the kind of resources and the capital being invested you know, within the kind of the mothership, if you like, um, you know, things like the Climate Pledge Fund, which are sort of US-based initiatives, but which we can really draw upon to accelerate our efforts um, here in Europe. But equally, I think, I do think there's a real opportunity for Amazon to learn from the external landscape here in Europe. And I've talked a bit about the customers, you know, having high demands and high expectations on us. It's also true that, you know, the general public at large, other stakeholders, the media, policymakers are moving... Yeah at a significantly faster pace, I think. So the EU Green Deal is um, is a great example. You know, it's a huge body of legislation and policy initiatives coming towards us. It touches everything. It, it touches circular economy, it touches transportation, energy, uh, it touches mandatory reporting in, in a way that, you know, it, we tend to see this as, as sort of the, I don't know if the canary in the coal mine is the right analogy to use it, but it's certainly a leading indicator of where we think some of these global trends are coming. Mm -hmm. On, on mandatory sustainability reporting, you know, we're really seeking to sort of build a global response based on the European regulatory change. And, you know, we certainly applaud the, the ambition of the EU regulators. You know, there's a Fit for 55 package, um, yeah. which came out, which, you know, it's about net zero continent by 2050, 55% emissions reduction by 2030, which is in, incredible ambition. And, you know, as a company, we, we applaud that because it's very aligned with our direction of travel. Well, great. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, it's been great to talk to you. You just heard from Zach Watts, Director of Strategy for Sustainability in Europe with Amazon. As I said earlier, we're podcasting this week from the Ice Hub in central Glasgow. This Ice Hub is a former Bank of Scotland building that's been taken over for this uh, two weeks by none other than Bill McDonough, who joins me now. Hey, Bill. Hi. So, first of all, what's the Ice Hub? Uh, why'd you do it? What's been going on here? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the obvious reasons is that COP26 is here, and a lot of us want to show our solidarity with that agenda and be here for all the various people that are here. The other is that we're announcing the first citywide reusable packaging system. It was developed here in Glasgow. So it's a fantastic thing to see reusability, uh, traceability, blockchain, and so on being brought to the packaging sector here, first with cosmetics, soaps, things like that. But it's a phenomenal system, and it democratizes uh, packaging. So it reminds me so much of the you know, those bottles or beer bottles that were all standard, and then people put different quality things in them. And it's a beautiful thing to see. So that's one reason. The other is that I'm here to talk with people about 
uh, being net positive. And uh, so I get to do that and, and meet with lots of people. And then Stan Stallnecker, who runs Hub Culture, is running it as a hub. Uh, so we have great food and, and, and great wisdom on how to convene people. And uh, events almost every night of uh, music and dance and all, all sorts of things. So here in Glasgow, obviously, is COP, and in, you've been hanging out in the Blue Zone and, and all over town, as, as we all have. And I'm wondering whether how the conversation uh, here in Glasgow has, what it has to do with circularity. Are they talking about that at all, a circular economy, cradle to cradle, any of these things? Is that showing up in the conversation here? I think it is. It's uh, not front and center because it's a climate COP. So I think there's a big part of that. But I think people are expecting that, that, you know, the circularity issues and how it reduces emissions and things is important. Uh, the one that I think we've added to that is what came out of the G20, which was circular carbon economy thinking, which I helped frame. But it was, uh, it was encouraged by the world leaders there. And it, it really says, you know, that carbon needs a special understanding because it's not only a material in the circular economy, it's also the fuel. So if we just say we're doing things again and again and that reduces our energy requirement, therefore we reduce our emissions, that's a good thing to be doing. But on the other hand, um, you're, what if we said, but we have the wrong system that produces emissions to begin with? So I think really the, the thread here should be, as an extension of circular economy, is we have to stop burning carbon as fuel. So we have to stop that and we have to, to reduce emissions by at least 50, 60% in the next eight, nine years. And we have to adopt renewable power massively. We have to do nature-based solutions everywhere all the time that we can find it. Regenerative agriculture, plant mangroves, just everything flat out. It's good for everybody. But I think the big revelation is we're going to need to do mechanical carbon capture. Nature can't handle as much as we're throwing at the atmosphere. And even for me on a personal level, I think net zero emissions by 2050 is also not a goal that we can really be excited about because we need to more than that. The, the atmospheric carbon levels are so high. If we get to net zero at the last minute, certainly that doesn't help. You can see why that would be a problem. But we need a very rigorous pathway and very rigorous reductions all the way along. I mean, it strikes me, and I was talking about this a little earlier in the podcast, that um, some of these things are happening much more quickly. Now, you know, it's, it, it, you know, we all talk about we're taking 20, 10 or 20 years, uh, 25 years in your case, for this to be an overnight sensation. But but a lot of the terms, things that are being talked about here yeah. are fairly new. They've really come up rather quickly, and it seems that the pace is accelerating. And I would imagine that net zero by 2050, that we will be looking back at twenty. 21 is saying, wow, that was sort of a lame goal because so many companies are getting there faster. Or am I just being overly optimistic? No, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I, I hope so. I think one of the key things here is that we're now going to require the youth to take over because uh, this, this, this is not yesterday's exercise. This is something urgent and, and the young people will rise to this occasion. I think you're right about that. I think by 2050, we'll look back and say, what, why do we think it takes so long? I hope that's the case. And it reminds me of the Kennedy situation where he said, we'll be at the moon in 10 years and in 1960, and we landed in nine years. And I did NASA space station on Earth, as you know. And when 
I got to know NASA. And the average age of the NASA engineer putting Neil Armstrong in the moon was 28 years old, which means the odds were he or she was in high school when Kennedy said that. So I think that's what we're looking at right now. Who is here right now in high school who is hearing this idea of net zero and why should it take so long? So I think that's one of the really exciting parts about seeing the energy of the young people here. They don't know that we can't do this. They're going to go do it. Also sort of curious that you said that, well, they're not talking about circular economy here because this is a climate conference. I mean, come on, there is a very direct link between the two. Or were you, were you being a little bit facetious there? Because, because these, are, these, are, every, these are all linked and they all roll up to climate. I agree with you completely. I think it is all linked. All I'm getting at is that there is a very serious focus here on the climate per se with some of the, all the issues of negotiating around it. I think circular economy is certainly, you know, a key element of solution side. So I think when you talk about the solutions, it's a very critical part. But in terms of just the cop, this cop, all those things going on that you see there, it's a climate climate discussion. Circular economy is certainly one of the key parts of it. How are you feeling about the circular economy conversation these days, uh, not just here in, in Glasgow, but around the world? Um, it, is it moving at the sort of scale, scope, and speed that you would hope, or is it just plodding along? How, what's, uh, I haven't taken your temperature on this in a long time. I'd be curious. Well, I think it's a, a lot like sustainability was in the 90s. You know, it's, a, it's something that we use to galvanize our, our thinking and activity. Um, I think because circularity is really effectively about quantification and doing things again, that's really ready for a reboot because I think you hear a lot of language that isn't quite circular in this. Um, and this issue of safety, which is not in the statement circular, is a real key element of that to give it qualification. So I think there's that. Uh, but I think it's I think it's been generally very successful for all the reasons that we can be happy. I mean, so many people have taken it up, treated it seriously, shared it. It's great. One of the places that it has gotten uptake is in fashion and apparel, and you've had a number of things. I think, uh, wasn't Stella McCartney here uh, uh, a couple of days ago before we're talking here? Um, why, why is apparel sort of the, the place where this is uh, getting just so much uptake? I think it's the fundamental thing about on one hand, the issue of the apparel being in this sort of crisis of overproduction. A lot of worry about that. You know, they, they call it consumption, but we don't really consume these clothes. So the idea that that's really in a, an excess that's underway has got attention. But the other thing about fashion is it's really one of the first places that humans make things. I mean, we even call what we do manufacturing. That means it was made by hand. Manufacturing right? is execution, man is hand. So it means hand making. So I think since our whole world of making things started with our hands, it started with knotting and carpets and knitting and weaving and laying bricks by hand. So manufacturing. And then we go to what we call, you know, the mills in Manchester, manufacturing, but that's machine factoring. Yeah. And we go from machine factoring to robot factoring and then we go to it's mass production and planned obsolescence and all these things that go along with mass production. So I think the, the that industry is really prime place to start because it deals with fundamental essentials of human making. So before I let you go, Bill, uh, what's been made you the most optimistic uh, these two weeks? I think the young people saying 
you know, let's go. You know, let's go. That's really what we have to hope for is that the next generation takes us on with immense grace and dignity. And I think this generation is trying to offer up a lot of solutions. I'm glad to see the business community has come around. I think that's a big sign. And uh, I'm sad to see the political issues have become overwhelmingly uh, uh, interfering with these kinds of coherent, large-scale conversations we need to have. Uh, one would hope that it'd be more like what happened with COVID. We'd all say, all together now, you know, this one. But yeah, that's what we're here for, is to figure out what to do next. Bill McDonough, it's always great to see you. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenviz.com slash 350, and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every week, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenviz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you. Your questions, your comments, your tips, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. I will be off next week, but Heather will be back in the saddle and from Midland Park, New Jersey, along with a co-host TBD and uh, with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash green biz. And this episode is sponsored by global technology company ABB. Find out how ABB is enabling a low-carbon society through the electrification and automation of industries, cities, and transport. Visit abb.com forward slash sustainability.